verses 1, 2, and 3 here in a moment. Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. So a woman writes a shopping list for her husband under the category of fruits and veggies, and before listing carrots and tomatoes, etc., she wrote, check dates. And so her husband brought home a box of Moroccan dates. You can see how that might happen. Uh, A woman sits down at a restaurant, and when the waiter asks if she wants the super salad, she says, yeah, that sounds good. And the waiter says again, super salad? And she says, yes. And the waiter pauses and says, Do you want salad or soup? These things happened. Here's one that occurred in my own extended family. And let me say up front, everything turned out fine. But in a family that had only ever had cats, with the new puppy in the house, when someone came to the front door, mom unwittingly said to her very literal four-year-old, Please throw the puppy downstairs. Ouch. Misunderstandings occur. Anytime human beings are communicating, there are going to be misunderstandings. And when that communication has to uh, 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 transition across various cultures, those miscommunications, those misunderstandings are even more profound. And when you think about a book like Genesis, not only does it, was it written in a, in a Near Eastern culture, and we have to interpret it in our Western setting, but it also was written 3,500 years ago. It is easy to misunderstand Genesis. It is easy to misapply it. If these things can happen among people who speak the same language and live in the same time and sometimes live in the same house, surely we are at risk of misunderstanding the book of Genesis. And that's why I'm going to start in Genesis 12 rather than starting at Genesis 1. It doesn't seem quite logical at first, but I would remind us of this reality that when the people heard this for the first time, when Moses' original audience heard this, they were already familiar with many of these themes. Our Old Testament reading this morning sets the stage for some of that. That God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now where is that covenant described? Well, at the time that God said that to Moses, it wasn't yet written. Genesis would be written later. But it was talked about. It was passed down by oral tradition. It was shared around the dinner table. It was discussed as a reality of their existence. So that when Genesis was finally written they already knew some of the things that were in here. They had heard some of these things talked about. So it didn't come to them as a surprise. It didn't come to them anew. And so this morning I want to take a few minutes and try to sketch out 
the framework around which Genesis is built. Some of the things that Moses' original audience would have known so that you and I can know them better. So that as we step back next week to Genesis 1-1 and begin to work our way through the book, we will hear these things and have a theological framework under which to hang them as Moses' original audience would have had. So, as I am often fond of reminding us here, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And I will often then comment on some particular application of that. And this morning, it's this. That means that if you want to understand the Bible, you have to know the Bible. Scripture is the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. Your pastor is not an infallible interpreter of Scripture. Your elders are not an infallible interpreter of Scripture. Your denomination is not the infallible interpreter of Scripture. If we want to understand the Bible correctly, then we have to understand the Bible. It seems counterintuitive, but the more you know about the Bible, the more the Bible will make sense. So let's take a look this morning at Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, Yahweh, and I'll remind us, that was Israel's God. It says Lord in all caps there. But that's the proper name of God, that is Israel's God. This is not one of the gods of Egypt. This is not Ra or Isis or Aten or Osiris or any of the others. This is Israel's God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed let's pray god almighty work your wondrous power in our hearts and heads so that we learn today what you want us to know. Help us to set aside any mistaken ideas so that we will know your truth found in your word given to us, your people. Thank you for doing this. We lift up this prayer in Christ's name. Amen. It will help us to understand Genesis if we know a little something about the context into which it was originally written. Uh, uh, Look briefly, if you'd like, at Exodus 24. If you were with us a few weeks ago, this will be familiar ground. Exodus 24, and in a moment I'm going to look at verse 4. Exodus 24, verse 4. That verse says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Now, what is that referencing? What did he write down? What is going on there? Well, if you start to piece together the bits and pieces of the book of Exodus, what you learn is that they are just three months out from Egypt. They have only been a free people for three months. 
And in that time, they had the incident at the Red Sea, and then they had the near starvation incident where God sent manna, and then they had the near malnutrition incident where God sent protein via quail, and then they had the near death from thirst incident where God brought water out of the rock, and then they had the near catastrophe with the Amalekites in which God, by the raising of Moses' arms, allowed Joshua to win that battle over the Amalekites, and then they had the catastrophe where they nearly killed each other because they couldn't get along, and God raised up a, 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 a judiciary system, elders, to settle their disputes. It's been a busy three months. There hasn't been time for Moses to sit down and write much. And in fact, what he's written at that point are Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. What's known as the Book of the Covenant. That's what he's written down. You see, in Exodus 20, God calls Moses up on the mountain and gives him the very first written word of God. It is what we know as the Ten Commandments. God begins with a summary, looking at the Ten Commandments. The next few chapters, he begins to explain how those laws might be applied in particular situations, what lawyers call case law. Those are chapters 21, 22, and 23. That's what Moses is writing down here in Exodus 24. If you look at Exodus 24, 15, God calls him right back up the mountain to get more instruction. And in fact, Exodus 25 through 40 is mostly, there's a few uh, interludes there, but mostly it's instruction about worship. How to build the tabernacle, how to build the Ark of the Covenant, how to make the priest garments, how they should come, how they do the sacrifice. Instructions about worship. And then we get into the book of Leviticus, and there are instructions about the sacrifices and about all the system. And then we get into the early parts of Numbers. There are more and more laws. And what we find is that God is calling Moses up on the mountain, and Moses is writing down the laws God's giving him. So that while Genesis comes first in our Bibles, and it's logically first, it wasn't written first. You see, they're on their way to being a new nation. What do they need right away? They need laws. They need structure for their nation far more than they need a history. Now, flip over to Deuteronomy 1, verse 2. Deuteronomy 1, verse 2. This is really an astounding verse. Now, before I read it, if you're unfamiliar with the story, let me fill you in real quickly. So, the book of Numbers records, which comes right before Deuteronomy, records their wandering, the, 40, the famous 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And that was because when they got to the edge of Canaan, they got to a, a, a place called Kadesh Barnea, they sent spies into the land. The spies came back with a report, oh, we can't take the land. And the people doubted God, and God punished them for their lack of faith by making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the doubting generation died off and a new generation arose. Okay? So they go from Egypt to Kadesh Barnea. They fail in their faith. They then wander for 40 years. And then Deuteronomy is the account of Moses' farewell sermon, his last sermon before he dies and the people enter the land. And then look what we have in Deuteronomy 1-2. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, that's another name for Sinai, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So that very first time they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, it took them just 11 days to get there. 
That means every day they were picking up and moving. Now, yes, it, didn't, it wasn't 11 days since the time they left Egypt because God had Moses up on the mountain for a while. But once God was done giving his law, once we were, he was done with the books of Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, he takes them to Kadesh Barnea, first part of Numbers. It's only 11 days. There is no time to write anything. They are packing up and walking, packing up and walking, packing up and walking. Genesis is written during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And that's instructive. That's incredibly important to know. Why? Well, as they're wandering in the wilderness, Moses has a whole new pastoral problem on his hands. The people have got their laws. They don't need more laws. They now need to understand why they're in the mess they're in. Why the world is going the way it's going. Why things are happening. And so Moses sits down and writes a history to explain to them how they got where they are. And that brings us to the first point, if you are following along in the notes, the purpose of Genesis for them back then. Genesis' purpose for them back then. It's quite simply this. To foster faith by demonstrating God's faithfulness. The purpose of Genesis was to foster human faith by demonstrating divine faithfulness. That's why Moses wrote Genesis. As the people are wandering in the wilderness, as they are struggling to believe that the promised land is ever going to be theirs, they've heard the things that we heard this morning. They've heard the things about God's promises, his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They've been told that this land was promised to them, and 40 years go by, and they aren't in the land. And their faith is waning again. And Moses is going, oh no, we're going to repeat the Kadesh debacle all over again. And to foster faith, he writes the record of God's faithfulness. So that in Genesis, we're going to find comfort for the woman wandering in the wilderness whose children are fighting with each other. Every mom knows that experience. Imagine now that you're doing it in the middle of the wilderness. You've got to pack up camp every day and move, and the kids are fighting and squabbling. And Moses is going to write about two sons who killed each other. But how God gave Eve another son so that the covenant promise of a seed of hope could be delivered. To that woman struggling with her children, she's going to be reminded that God was faithful to other women struggling with their children. To the the one who's wondering whether the promised land is even out there at all. You keep telling us, Moses, that we're headed to a promised land, but it's 36 years now and nothing has happened. And then they're going to read in Genesis how the one who originally received that promise, a man named Abraham, he never was given any portion of the land. God didn't give him one iota of the promised land, and he lived for 175 years. 
at the end of his life, he owns one little tiny plot. He bought it. God didn't give it to him. And it was the place where he buried his wife, Sarah. And yet, he continued to trust God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Moses is going to say to the people, keep trusting. There's your righteousness. Keep believing. Stay on the path of faith. The purpose of Genesis to those people then was to demonstrate divine faithfulness so as to encourage and foster human faith. And that's its purpose to us today. That purpose is not changed 3,500 years later. How does Paul say it uh, 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 when he's writing, I think it's the church in Corinth, when he writes, he says, all the things that have been written in the past were written for your edification so that you might have their example. The purpose of Genesis today remains the same. What are you struggling with? Is it an issue at work or a lack of work altogether? Genesis addresses why we have problems in our work and what God is doing about it. Are there problems in your family? Genesis is going to explain why those problems exist and what God is doing about it. Practically anything that we're going through is addressed in the book of Genesis. Its purpose for us remains the same as it was for them 3,500 years ago. It is to foster our faith by showing us God's faithfulness. It is an ongoing demonstration of God keeping his covenants in unexpected ways, in ways that surprise, in, in ways that no one could have foreseen. And yet, his promises are fulfilled. So with that purpose in our heads, with that understanding, I want to look a little bit at the pattern we find in Genesis. I want to give us this pattern now so that as we go through the book, we can begin to attach things to that and go, oh, that's right. We were, Yeah, I remember seeing that pattern. Oh, that's how that fits into that. And what's going to happen as we go through Genesis in the coming weeks and months, we're going to begin to see that Genesis lays very plainly the pattern of our own lives. This is exactly what's going on with us. And when we recognize it, one, it fosters faith by which we might break out of some of these bad patterns. But more importantly, it is a constant reminder of God's faithfulness in spite of his people's sin. One of the main themes of Genesis is they sin and God is still faithful. They fall short and God still takes care of them. They go wrong, but God still saves. It is an account, not of those who were heroes of the faith and therefore deserve to be uh, uh, held up and, and idolized, 
where there is an account of those who did just about every sin you can imagine, but because they believed, God counted that as righteousness. Let's take a look at that pattern. Let's begin in Adam's story. Flip back to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at a couple verses, hit real quickly here and there, and move forward, kind of glimpsing through the book. We're going to come back to all of this in more detail in the weeks and months to come. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them. Now you already, I, I tried to stress when I read the, the 12, 1, 2, and 3, we saw already the blessing in Abraham, the Abraham account. We're going to find this word bless is going to occur over and over and over and over again in the book of Genesis. One of the things we see is God's blessing upon his people. In the Adam story, it comes first. And God blessed them. Keep going in verse 28b. This is the second thing. So blessing is one theme we're going to see repeated. The second one is this, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Call that offspring if you want, call it, if you want to do a little more King, King James, a little more literal language, call it seed. That's the literal Hebrew word there. Blessing is going to be a theme, seed, offspring is going to be a repeated pattern. Skip over to chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Blessing is going to be a common thing. Seed or offspring is going to be common. And land, land, we have already seen it. Where are they headed? To the promised land. What are they looking forward to? The promised land. What was promised to Abraham? Leave Canaan and I will take you to a land that I'm going to show you. Land is going to be important. And in fact, so much so that we are going to have to shift our thinking and we're going to have to stop looking for the word promised and just recognize when the word land shows up how that resonated in the Hebrew mind. There are those things in our lives where we can drop part of the descriptor and know what we're talking about. If you're a basketball fan, you don't need to say LeBron James every time. If you just say LeBron, kind of people kind of know who you're talking about. Yeah, don't need to add the James because there is just one LeBron in the basketball world. So it was with the promised land. You didn't really need to add the word promised. Haaretz, the land. And to the Hebrew mind, that meant one and only one land. So blessing is going to be important. Offspring or seed is going to be important. Land is going to be important. The next, the fourth one is existential danger. Existential danger. Big word, what does it simply mean? Existence, existential, having to do with their existence. The people are going to be constantly in danger of going out of existence. For the Adam account... Look at Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now flip over to 3. Genesis 3, verse 6. The woman took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What did God say would happen if they ate? They would die. What did they do? They ate. Are they in danger of losing their existence? Yes, they are. Blessing is going to be a common theme. Cedar offspring is going to be a common theme. The land is going to be a common theme. And this threat to their existence, almost always brought on by their own mistakes, is going to be a common theme. But then we find the fifth refrain, salvation. Salvation. Say there in chapter 3, look at verse 21. The Lord God slew Adam and Eve. That's what he told them. But look what it says. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Remember, they were afraid. They were naked. They were ashamed. They were scared. God was walking in the garden. They didn't want God to find them this way. And what does God do? He provides for their need. He does not execute the promised judgment. But there is a stay of execution. You say, well, what good is the stay of execution if they're going to die anyway? That stay of execution is everything. For in there, there is now time to respond to God in faith and have the execution stayed forever. We keep reading down in verse 22. Now, this is God speaking, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Have you ever realized, and we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but have you ever realized the mercy of God in that sentence right there? Can you imagine living forever in this broken world. I wouldn't want to do it. No, thank you. And God took mercy on them and said, I'm going to make things right so they don't have to live in this mess forever. Back up to chapter, to verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There was hope. Salvation amounted to grace and mercy and hope. Grace, they didn't get the death they deserved. Mercy, they didn't live in this broken world forevermore. And hope, someday someone would come to crush that serpent. We can go a little faster now. We go to the Noah story. You don't necessarily have to turn there. I'll just give you some verses if you want to look at them later. Is there a danger to their existence? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Is there a danger to their existence? Is there an existential threat? Yeah. When God regrets your existence, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. That's verses 5 and 6 of chapter 6. 
But then verse 8 says this, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There it is, salvation, favor, grace. There was an existential danger, but there was salvation. We fast forward to chapter 9, verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons. There's that blessing. We keep reading in chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's that seed element. The land, when it comes to Noah, the land's a little more obscure, but remind yourself, what was the point of the rainbow? It was a reminder to God that he had made a promise never to do what? Never to destroy all the earth again with a flood. The land is now protected by God's covenant. So in the story of Adam, we have these themes of blessing, of seed, of, 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 of I've forgotten them already, <laughs> of land, of uh, uh, there's a, then there's a threat because of their sin, and then God steps in to save them. In the time of Noah, they're sinning and there's a threat. God steps in to save them. He blesses Noah and his sons. He tells them to, to multiply and include seed, and he protects the land for them. Fast forward to Abraham's story. What did we just read earlier? In chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, go to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. The people, the offspring, the seed. You will be a blessing. I will bless you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Was there an existential threat in Abraham's life? Well, gee, I don't know. There was a famine in the land, so they had to escape to Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, he was threatened to be uh, 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 killed by Pharaoh so that his wife could be taken. And he prostituted his wife to Pharaoh to save his own life, so her life was now threatened. Then they go back to the land, and, you know, and Sarah can't have... Oh, oh, go back to the land, and he has to fight the, nine, the battle of the nine kings, so there's a, a threat to his existence there. You know. And then, in the midst of all of this, Sarah is barren. The threat to the line is constantly there. When she finally has a kid, his older brother Ishmael is a threat to him. And then his own father takes him over the mountain to kill him. There's a continuous threat to their existence. And yet, God provides salvation. At every turn. Each and every time. So the people are in the wilderness, and they have heard these stories. They know about Abraham. They know about the promise to him. They know that they're going to the, they are Abraham's descendants, and they are going to the land that was promised to Abraham. Do you know that's where you're going? Do you understand our New Testament reading? You say, Scott, Israel today doesn't occupy but a tiny little sliver of the promised land. When I read the, the promise to Abraham, it was to be a much bigger chunk of land. And all they, all they have is this little tiny bit. It's 3,500 years later, and God has failed. He has not delivered. Well, first of all, let me remind you that the promised land was always to be only a down payment. To Adam, he was to rule over and have dominion over the whole 
earth, knowing his descendants were to rule over and have dominion and populate the whole earth. When the next Adam comes along, a man by the name of Abraham, he is to one day, his people, his descendants, his faithful uh, 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 seed is to rule over all the earth. And of course the Davidic covenant is that the son of David would be king over all the earth. So the promised land was never the end. It was merely a down payment. But then what do we read in our New Testament reading? Paul says to the church in Rome, it is not as though God has failed. You don't understand. Not everyone who descended from Abraham biologically is of Abraham. And he quotes the promise, for it is by Isaac. Let me interject some things here. In other words, not Ishmael. By Isaac, your offspring shall be reckoned. The miracle child. The one who came in the unnatural way. That is how the descendants of Abraham are to be counted. And that's why Paul says, those who are of the faith of Abraham are his descendants. If you don't understand that this morning, then there's nothing in Genesis that's going to make sense to you. In fact, there's nothing in the Old Testament that is going to make sense to you. And in fact, the truth is, there ought to be a fair bit in the New Testament that's confusing to you. For if you believe in the God who delivers on his covenants, then you are a descendant of Abraham. It is why we can sing the song, Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them. So are you. These promises, these covenants, these stories, these accounts of God's faithfulness, these uh, 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 insights into the human condition are for us as the descendants of Abraham. You know what's more? We have more surety than they did. Those who wandered in the wilderness back then needed to be convinced. We ought not need that same convincing. For we have such a down payment on these promises that we need not doubt. Mom just sold her house, as many of you know. The buyer was a little peculiar. He asked for some weird things. It was a little odd the whole way it played out. But you know why mom was willing to go forward with it and put up with it? Because there was no doubt he was going to back out. He put down $10,000 earnest money. There's no way he's walking away from that. So mom said, yeah, I'll put up all his quirkiness because I know that deal is going to come to fruition. God sent his son to begin the process of bringing these promises to a conclusion. He directed that Jesus go to the cross. He then gives us his Holy Spirit as the guarantor of these promises. If he's done that, why would he not come through? Why would he put down that kind of earnest payment and not follow through? 
the hope found in Genesis, the promises found in Genesis, the faithful God found in Genesis, the covenants found in Genesis, these are ours. We're going to have to occasionally be careful of the cultural differences and how we apply them to us. But they are ours. That's why we're going to study this book. That's why I'm so excited about doing this together as a church. For we are going to grow in an understanding of who our God is, what he has done, and what he is doing. Let's pray. God, show us yourself in the book of Genesis. Let us see you. And as we see you, let us believe more. Let us trust more. Let us hope more fully and completely upon you. Let us not doubt But let us believe that you who began these things with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham are going to keep treating your people this way. You're going to keep pulling them away from the brink, pulling them out of the threat, saving them from the the danger that they bring even upon themselves. And as we grow in an understanding of this, let us grow in our joy for you, and our enthusiasm for you, and our excitement for you. Let us see in all of this the wonderful work brought about, initiated so beautifully in Christ, and let us look forward with great confidence to its fulfillment one day. We pray this in his name. Amen.